Welcome to part two of this episode. Hope you enjoyed your break. Epic. 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 More <laughs> epic than our usual epicness. Yeah. So let's get right to it as Claude's going to give us the plot description for 24 Hour Party People. Yeah. We open, the song goes. <laughs> we open on a TV reporter who's about to go hang gliding, but he's clearly got some reservations about it. Well, that would be Tony Wilson. He's played by Steve Coogan. And as it happens, he's partially right to be nervous because while the takeoff and gliding goes quite well, the landing involves the glider catching on a barbed wire fence. Cut to opening credit. Tony's at a show that's meant to be the Sex Pistols and the Buzzcocks. However, the Buzzcocks say uh, they're not ready to play, so here's the Sex Pistols only. Now, the Buzzcocks were a known element in Manchester, UK around that time, the late 70s, not so much with the Sex Pistols at that point. So the audience, which is comprised of 42 people, is confused at first and then a little bit more accepting. Tony, speaking directly directly to the camera, notes that the buzzcocks set the audience up on purpose, pointing them out in the back of the audience. He also points out a few key players in the story we're about to see and what happens to them later on. Tony is the host of a television show called So It Goes, which airs on Grenada TV, and his narration actually helps the viewer stay with what's going on because we're moving from event to event just so quickly. Tony notes that he's getting a little interested in presenting bands on television, so he's looking into opening a club. He meets up with Don Tonet, uh, played by Peter Kay, to become a partner in The Factory, a club that Tony runs. Tony, Tony is a little miffed because his first name is so close to Don's last name, and most people address Don as Tony. His associate, Alan, played by Lenny James, suggests, well, just call him Don, and that actually seems to work. Tony tells his television audience that he's doing his last episode of So It Goes, and that they should head to The Factory for new music, and the tactic actually appears to work. The club is quite busy, enough that the singer can't get to the stage so easily. At the end of the show, Tony leads Tony out back where a couple of professional girls are waiting for them in the back of a van. Unfortunately, his wife Lindsay, who's portrayed by Shirley Henderson, finds them and leaves with one of the buzzcocks, specifically Howard DeVoto, who's played by Martin Hancock. They're going to have revenge sex on a bathroom stall. Tony finds them, and he leaves with great aplomb. The bathroom attendant in this scene, it turns out, is played by the real Howard DeVoto, and he notes to the camera that he has no memory of this incident happening. Tony narrates that he's correct, it didn't happen, but the legend is more interesting than the truth, so here we are. In fact, Tony and Lindsay are a more or less typical couple. Tony hooks up with the Joy Division, and he signs them on as Factory Records' first act. Uh, he hires Martin Hannett, a, who's played by Andy Serkis. Martin has some interesting ideas about his recording technique, but it actually works out well, and he manages to beat Joy Division into a decent studio band. The only problem for Tony is that Tony owns a piece of Joy Division, so he begins casting about for another band that he will own outright. His first effort is a band called A Certain Ratio, but while they look good, they're not playing especially well in the clubs. Joy Division, in the meantime, is doing quite well, and it's suggested that civil unrest in the UK is one of the waves that the new music is riding on. During one show, Joy Division singer Ian Curtis, who's playing by Sean Harris, has a seizure on stage, but they're all excited because they're about to tour the U.S. Shortly thereafter, Ian goes to visit Tony, but he's greeted instead by Lindsay, who says Tony's not home. Ian goes home and hangs himself that evening. The next day, Tony is furious when he hears the news, but he recovers quickly and he tries to arrange for reporter Mick Middles, who's played by Simon Pegg, to write the band's biography. Lindsay tells Tony that she's leaving him. 
He tries to get her to change her mind, but she's adamant. We cut to a couple of guys on a rooftop feeding the pigeons, and it turns out they're in fact poisoning the pigeons, and they wind up killing nearly 3,000 birds. These guys are the core of the band Happy Mondays, and we're going to come back to them in a few minutes. Wilson opens a new club called the Hacienda. It's 1982, and he uses a certain ratio for the opening night. Business is very slow at first. Joy Division, in the meantime, or the remaining members of Joy Division, I should say, have rebranded as New Order and recorded Blue Monday. As we listen to New Order practicing Blue Monday, we learn that the 12-inch single for the song is losing money because the packaging is so expensive. In short, the better the song sells, the more money Factory Records loses, and it's affecting the bottom line of the Hacienda, which is part of the business after all. Tony sees Happy Mondays play at a battle of the bands at the Hacienda, and even though they came in last, he signs them to Factory Records. Now, they don't have Martin anymore, at least not at first, so they're having a tougher time reining in the band members in the studio because they're largely fueled by the drugs that their per percussionist is providing. But they're still a pretty good club band, and the attendance at the Hacienda begins to pick up to the point where the DJ is getting applause. Tony proclaims it the birth of rave culture. The Mondays are taking forever to get their first single together, and it turns out it's because Martin is back to producing the music, and he's the one slowing things down. But there's no doubt that he's put together some great music. The Happy Mondays go on tour, and it's sex and drugs on the tour bus to go with the rock and roll. Tony meets up with Miss UK, a lovely young lady named Yvette backstage. Yvette is played by Kate McGowan. He and Yvette become a couple despite the 15-year gap in their age. In fact, Tony notes they're still together. Tony notes that despite the big crowds, the Hacienda wasn't making nearly enough money because most of the money that the crowd was spending, well, they were spending it on drugs rather than alcohol. Consequently, Manchester in general becomes a hotbed for drug violence, and eventually it moves into the Hacienda, which of course is going to affect the club's popularity, unless they do something, and their solution was an unfortunate one, because they put the dealers in charge of the door to try to keep the violence on the outside. Martin has a heart attack off screen and he dies. Tony goes to the funeral, where we learn that Martin was so big at that point that the grave was too narrow for the casket. Meanwhile, the company needs to make money, but the bands are taking forever to record and release records. The Happy Mondays basically embezzled the money they were being sent to record in Barbados to sustain the lead singer uh, Sean's drug habit, and when they finally finish the album, he holds the master tape hostage. Tony meets with Sean and offers him 50 pounds for the tape and Sean agrees to it. Unfortunately, the tape has only a backing track on it. There are no vocals and they've already spent over 200,000 pounds on the project. They begin looking for someone to finance finishing the project. Tony's television job is now as the host of the UK version of Wheel of Fortune. Tony, being extra meta, notes that the director of the show is played by the real Tony Wilson and, identify, and identifies a few other celebrities who have been in the film, including one who got cut out of the final product. A representative from London Records comes by and rather than finance the finish to the Monday's album, he offers five million pounds for the entire label. In a moment of candor, Tony notes that he has no real contract with the artist, but that means London doesn't have to deal with him at all. This results in the eventual shutdown of the Hacienda, of course, but Tony's quite philosophical about it. He goes into the club where the Mondays are playing Hallelujah. He's meeting and greeting people, and meanwhile, there's a repo company coming to complete the shutdown. Tony goes to the DJ stand and tells the crowd it's time to leave, but he encourages them to loot the place on their way out. Tony goes to the rooftops and smokes mm, something with his mates. He has a hallucination where God, who looks a lot like Tony with a beard, affirms that he was right all along. 
and the credits note that he still works for Grenada TV. Okay, so I don't know, Claude, if you are a fan of the Velvet Underground. I am. Okay, so you know the legend about the fact that only so many people bought their first album, but it seemed like all the people who did buy that first album went out and formed the band. And similarly, um, as Tony Wilson claims in this uh, movie, that the uh, show that the Sex Pistols performed at the Lesser Free Trade Hall uh, did not have many people in the audience, but it seemed like almost everyone in the audience either formed a band or became involved in the music industry in some way after that. And you have to remember that the music that the Pistols were playing here in addition to being uh, Johnny Rotten's uh, and um, Malcolm McLaren, a combination of Johnny Rotten and Malcolm McLaren's competing visions of the band, was the forerunner of punk music and basically a way of trying to push back against what many people saw as the rock and roll establishment of the time in America, of course, but also in Britain. In other words, the type of music that Lester Bangs in Almost Famous was claiming was killing rock and roll and everything that people like him loved about it. And appropriately for a movie like that, movie like this one, that's trying to get into the spirit of punk music and then also the spirit of rave music, which was a natural continuation of punk, although there's quite a lot of music that was in between there that was also somewhat of a continuation of punk. But in contrast to Almost Famous, which was given this professional look and was shot by John Tall. 24-Hour Party People, which was shot by Robbie Mueller in what turned out to be his last feature film, looks a lot more rough around the edges. Now, there's also a combination of real-life footage from the time. We do see the Sex Pistols playing on stage at that uh, show that is real life footage with mixed with fictional footage and also footage of Tony Wilson's TV show so you've got this much rougher looking film but as I said I think it's appropriate to the tone of the movie and of the spirit of punk music um, which you know as for the tone of the movie this is made by people who were as much fans of this type of music as Crow is of the music that he's depicting in Almost Famous, but then you've got a much cheekier 
attitude about the whole thing as well. And yet I think it works very well. It looks really good. I mean, cause he, yeah, it's, it's got this grainy kind of feel to it, but also, especially during some of the performance scenes and, and the, the shots in the clubs, you've got a lot of quick cuts. You've got like the camera moving quickly. You've got alternating between color and black and white and all of it with this very, very grainy kind of look going on as though everything's a little bit under lit and, and, it, it it works so very, very well because you're just buying right into the, the, the documentary feel that this whole thing has for it. Yes, I love the way this, this film looked. Right. Now, let's uh, talk a little bit about that cheeky humor. Um, if, um, if you didn't know who Steve Coogan was uh, in America, you probably didn't. But in Britain at the time, he was famous for being a comic uh, a personality. He had a TV show called The Alan Partridge Show, where he played... Um, Let's just say that although I don't know if he was copied from Larry Sanders, he's playing sort of a British equivalent of Larry Sanders, the same type of unctuous, fawning, uh, self-involved uh, uh, TV host, uh, and apparently inspired by, among other people, the real Tony Wilson. And this was Coogan's first foray into movies, or at least his first major foray into the movies. It also ended up being the first of what to date I think is nine collaborations between him and Michael Winterbottom. Uh, the most frequent collaborations have been with the Trip movies. I don't know if you've seen any of those, Claude. Uh, basically, no. Coogan and Rob Brydon, another uh, comedian who also appears in a small role in 24-Hour Party People. Um, I think he's one of the people, his character's name is Rob Bright is uh, Ryan Letst. I think he's one of the people involved in running the label. But um, the trip movies basically are Coogan and Brian going on trips throughout Europe and touring restaurants uh, throughout various parts of Europe. The first part which is just called The Trip. All, all of these movies, by the way, are edited versions of miniseries. And Coogan and Brian are basically playing versions of themselves as they tour through restaurants through um, Northern England, which is the first trip movie. And then there's the trip to Italy, of course, trips through Italian restaurants, and the trip to Spain, where they tour Spanish restaurants. And... Uh, but here, even though Coogan, as in many of his other movies, is playing a variation on himself and Bryden is doing a comic role, I think Coogan does a very good job here. And not just in the comic parts. Um, I know when he wrote and co-starred in the movie Philomena, which is about a uh, Irish mother who had her 
baby forcibly taken away because she had him out of wedlock. And then when she, the movie is about when she gets older, how she teamed up with a journalist played by Coogan to try and find her son. And he, Coogan always said it wasn't until Philomena that he got to act in a dramatic way and not just comically. But I think in 24-Hour Party People, he shows some nice dramatic chops as well. I mean, you mentioned that when Coogan finds out that Ian Curtis has committed suicide, that he gets angry. But he also gets overcome with emotion, and Coogan does a good job with that as well. And by the way, if you're only familiar with Simon Pegg through his comic work, uh, you might be surprised at the fact that in this movie, he does nothing funny in his scenes at all. He's only in the funeral scenes, and he plays those scenes very straight. So both of them, I think, do a good job showing the dramatic parts as well. But Coogan does a good job throughout the entire movie and is generous enough with the rest of the performers to illustrate the fact that, as he puts it, although he's the storyteller here, he is not, in fact, the main character of this story. The scene is the main character. Yeah, yeah, he does He does mention that. Uh, it's... Uh, I- Near the end, anyway. Um, and and you're right. As far as even when he's Tony Will, his Wilson is a, is a is a is a complicated guy, and so even in those serious scenes, you know, there there's a little bit of a comic undertone. I think that that we get in retrospect, and I'll, I'll frame it that way because the thing is, he's 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 having these serious moments, and at the same time, there's just this undercurrent of um like like a kind of absurdity with 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 some of the things that he is doing so you know he he learns he learns about ian curtis's death and the next person he speaks to about it is a town crier and i'm not sure whether that particular event actually happened um in in one way or another especially since the town crier is doing it on television um but but then similarly when he is having the um the conversation with Simon Pegg's character, the reporter, and he's sad, he's overcome, but there's an opportunity here. And so he's still going to grab that and see if he can't move forward somehow and turn this into a positive kind of thing. And the other thing was, was the scene where his wife is announcing that she's leaving him and his affect is a little bit peculiar. And, and, you know, and, and, and so he is asking, you know, I'm asking you, please, don't do this. Stay with me. Blah 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 blah. But there is also, again, something behind that. As far as look what you're doing to me. Look how this is affecting me. And it, it's it's I I actually flash back a little bit on um, on Godfather Part Two. You know when Kay tells Michael that she's leaving, and it's the same kind of thing as like you're taking my kids away from me. This is what you're you're doing this to me, and and that's the way. That that's the lens that he is viewing this through, and that struck me as as really interesting and and just a a, a cool way of of doing this. And you know when she finally leaves and he has to put on this little bit of bravado. All right, well you know f you anyway, and you know that's the way that goes. You know you know, but you understand at the same time that you know this is this is the hurting guy putting on the face. This is you know this is Penny Lane. 
you know, covering up the fact that she recognizes what's going on in New York. It's it's really the same kind of thing as like, I'm, I'm doing this, but it's really covering up the, the thing that's actually happening here. Speaking of Penny Lane, uh, one criticism that got lobbed in some quarters from Almost Famous was that Crow's vision of the movie was too much of the wearing of the rose-colored glasses of what the rock and roll scene was at the time uh whether or not you agree with that or not i don't agree with that at all to be honest even though he is a little more optimistic about things than most filmmakers are it certainly is not true with 24-hour party people Winterbottom and Frank Cottrell Boyce, who wrote the screenplay for the movie and at the time was a frequent collaborator of Winterbottom's, really do show us the dark side of what was going on with the uh, bands. I mean, some of it, of course, is darkly funny, especially any parts with uh, Martin, like when he's uh, locked the, uh, when he's putting bands through uh, the rehearsals in the studio or when he's uh, pulling a gun on people, but it's still pretty dark as well. Uh, after all, we do have a suicide here of uh, Ian Curtis, and while that wasn't entirely caused by drugs, certainly it didn't help. And so, you know, as I said, there are quite a lot of uh, dark issues that are being shown in the movie, but at the same time, um, it never feels like Winterbottom and Boyce are indulging in this for their own sake to get off on it. It feels honest and real. Yeah, and I think you could say that for both of these films, really. I mean, they're, they are, you know, a kind of love letter to their respective genres, and they're just coming at it exactly. from, from, from different from different angles. And, and so... You know, you know, Crow, you know, chose to take a little bit of a sunnier side view of things because he's, yeah, he's got the warm and fuzzy memories, you know, and, and Winterbottom is going a little bit more warts and all with it and, and actually having to inject a couple of notes into the story that didn't really happen in, in real life. So, you know, for instance, Tony didn't go to the funeral. He didn't go to Ian Curtis' funeral because, because he was with, Ian's girlfriend who couldn't travel to the funeral. And so, you know, there there are there are parts of this story that they have actually lightened up a little bit, believe it or not, um, right. ju just for the sake of a little bit of a better story. And, you know, similarly, like the thing with the bathroom, all right? All that didn't really happen, but you print the legend, not the story. Right. Now, um, getting back to that um, tone a little, one of the things that helps contribute to the tone of the movie, that it's uh, a cheeky humor, is the real-life fact that when it came to Factory Records, um, they were unlike any other record label in that the inmates pretty much ran the asylum here. Mm -hmm. You know, that Tony Wilson pretty much left each band to their own devices. Now, the downside at downside of that of course is you'd get things like the happy mondays putting something out that was basically unlistenable even after they tried to repackage it in the best way that they knew how but the upside was that 
the bands who recorded for them, um, most of all Joy Division and New Order, basically were able to get the sound that they wanted without record label interference, and that reflected in the music. Now, the one band that was involved in Factory Records, whose music you did not hear in the movie, is The Smith. That's because uh, Morrissey uh, was involved in a dispute with uh, Tony Wilson, and so he refused permission for The Smith's music to be used in the movie. Now, personally speaking, as I've never been a fan of The Smiths in general, or Morrissey in particular, although I will concede that Johnny Marr is a good guitar player. For me, that was for the best. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, that wasn't, what, wasn't, wasn't one of the things that, that God had said was like, you, you didn't sign the Smiths. Uh, I don't remember that. I do remember that he said something unflattering about Mick Hucknall. Yeah, it was in the same the sentence. Lead like, he's singer like, it's, of, a, it's, a, it's a pity you didn't sign the Smiths, but you're right about Mick Hucknall because he's a ginger. Yes. And, uh, yes, and um, the filmmakers had to apologize to Hucknall <laughs> after the movie came out because of that. But uh, whereas Mick Jagger took the uh, line about him in Almost Famous in stride because, of course, it's pretty flattering. But uh, so he was anyway. already over 50 when the film came out. So. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, he had no choice to, to that. Now, um, well, as I said, this was the first movie of nine to date that Coogan and Rob Brydon did with Michael Winterbottom. This actually was the third movie that Shirley Henderson had done with Winterbottom, uh, although most viewers probably remember her best as Moaning Myrtle in the Harry Potter movies. Henderson has done a lot of interesting things movies, including the two that she did with Winter Bonham previously. Wonderland, which is not to be confused with the um, John Holmes biopic Wonderland with uh, Val Kilmer. This one is about three sisters, one of whom is played by Molly Parker. And then um, she was also in The Claim, which is a Western retelling of Thomas Hardy's novel, The Mayor of Casterbridge. And she's effective in both of those. And she's also effective in this movie as well. You know, she does get the cheeky humor parts of it, but she also lands, uh, lends some dramatic heft to the movie as well, uh, particularly in the scene that she has with Ian Curtis as that character. And then also the scene where, as you pointed out, she's leaving um, Tony Wilson and he makes it all about him. You can see on her face how um, devastated she is about that. Yeah, she doesn't. She doesn't want to do this, and and she's just you know for the sake of her sanity, maybe she just gotta. And uh, she does a fantastic job, like keeping that scene kind of grounded. Yeah. Yeah. Now, a couple of the other supporting performances I want to mention. Uh, Andy Serkis, of course, is known for his. Um, 
Yeah, I didn't recognize him with a face on. (laughs) Yes. Well, he's been in uh, other movies as a live action actor. He was in a Mike Lee movie. I know. I'm Uh, I didn't recognize him. Uh, But he does a very good job of showing just how crazy uh, Martin is. And uh, Sean Harris as Ian Curtis is also very good. Um, Wow. While he may not be quite as good as the actor who ended up playing Curtis in the uh, biopic of uh, Curtis and Joy Division that came out, Control, uh, Sam Riley played him in that movie, but he is really good. And the real Tony Wilson did a commentary for the DVD edition that I own. And he admitted that the actor in the movie who most impressed him was Sean Harris because he didn't believe that anybody could do justice to Curtis. So he was blown away by the fact that Harris did. Yeah, he did a great job. And again, in that scene where right before he kills himself with Leslie uh, and, and, you know, and you can see there's the, that that um, that the, the, the undercurrent of sadness that's going on. I mean, the, I, Curtis, I mean, in addition, in addition to whatever other problems he had, like the, the medical issue and, and that, you know, he was a depressed guy and, you know, and it, uh, obviously manifesting itself in him ultimately killing himself. And, and it's one of those things where, uh, you know, a character in a film who is going to kill himself you know sometimes we get into these little tropes where they you know give all their stuff away or they say something that kind of hints at what they're going to do and in this case he's just conveying it all through his expressions and and you know the looks in his eye and that kind of thing he's not he's he's not just you know he's not really giving away the whole store here and and so if you don't know what happened to ian curtis you know you're coming at this you know as somebody who just doesn't know the stories you know you have no idea that you know when we see ian sitting there watching the movie and and you know in in, in his apartment that the next shot you're going to see his feet dangling from the ceiling that comes as a huge, huge surprise because, you know, Harris has not telegraphed at all what what Ian is about to do here. Yeah, and I actually did not know the story when wow. I first saw the, the story of Joy Division, when I first saw the movie. Uh, I saw this at a special screening. I didn't really know much about the movie at all. Um I or about what the what it was about. I just saw this at a screening because a it was free, <laughs> b because the title sounded pretty interesting, and c Michael Winterbottom. Now Winterbottom's career has been hit or miss, but he is another one of those directors who is always taking chances. You know, he's not trying to repeat himself. You know, you can say that a lot of his movies do have this sort of rough hewn look to them and that there's always a or usually a political bent to them uh left wing because he is very much left wing but he's done these uh, music movies he's done the trip movies he's done literary adaptations he's actually done three adaptations of thomas hardy novels of which i believe the claim is the best of them and he's done documentaries he's uh 
done family and dramas. He's done a lot of different types of movies. And we've already visited his work many episodes ago when we did uh, Welcome to Sarajevo. Right. Yes, that's another of the political bent movies. And another music-related movie that he did, which no one seems to like but me is nine song which uh, basically tells the story of a relationship between nine concerts and nine sex scenes and in my opinion it's much better than it sounds but anyway uh two uh people who make cameos here who i want to mention are uh, john Them. He plays the guy who ends up being the lead vocalist for New Order um, that comes out of Joy Division, um, Bernard Bernard, Sumner. Um, He's mostly known for his TV work. Um, If you were a fan of the original British show Life on Mars, uh, which was inspired, of course, by the Bowie song, and also a terrific British miniseries uh, called State of Play. He plays one of the two main characters in it. And then also some another person who has acted in a couple of Winterbottom movies, Christopher Eccleston, has an uncredited cameo here. Um, is he the guy who you referred to as the town crier? I think so, yeah. Yeah, his uh, character is actually called uh, Bothius in the movie, but he uh, has his appearances very funny in there in a dark way as well. So do you have anything else you want to add here before we wrap this one up? Yeah, the, just just that you know both of these films and and but I'm gonna like stick to this one in particular is you know, Definitely take character Tony's uh, admonition early in the film as, as far as the difference between the legend and the, and the truth, you know, because there are definite legends at play here. So, you know, while this really conveys, you know, the feeling for the era and, and a lot of the events that actually did happen, you know, you don't want to, and, and despite the look of the film, you don't want to view this as a documentary of what happened in the late 70s, early 80s. It's a nice jumping off point for getting into the feel of that era. But yeah, go find yourself a real documentary. No, but I mean, I think it's more important to capture the feeling than sure. anything else. And both of these movies do capture the feeling very well so this is the point where we tell you that mm-hmm. almost famous in addition to being available on uh different editions of dvds i happen to have the untitled edition on regular dvd and blu-ray because i love the movie that much but if you prefer to stream it you can stream it on DirecTV, stars and then also stars if you receive it if you subscribe to star to stars through Amazon Prime or through Roku, or you can rent or buy it through Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, and most other streaming services. While 24-Hour Party People, which is also available on DVD, in which I own, you could also stream that through uh, Hoopla or Canopy if you're lucky enough to have a library that carries either of those or both of those. Or you can watch it for free with ads on uh, Pluto TV and Tubi 
or uh, Freevee, which used to be IMDTV, if you subscribe to that through Amazon, or you could rent it through Amazon, Apple, Google Play, Vudu, and YouTube, or also buy it through any of those as well. Uh, before we move here, before we move on here, I, I just want to bring up one more thing. It, uh, just uh, an episode or two ago, we, we talked briefly about the musical biopics, and we talked about... Uh, the Elvis biopic specifically. And I just wanted to bring up shortly after we recorded that episode, because we are several weeks in advance here, uh, the actress who played Big Mama Thornton, Shanka Dukura, died uh, not long after we recorded that episode. And it just, it hadn't happened yet at that time. So I just wanted to, you know, the, the reason that I hadn't mentioned it then was just, you know, because it hadn't happened. Uh, but but apparently she was found dead in her apartment. Uh, there didn't appear to be any foul play. Uh, she was like, uh, there was, she had uh, some hypertensive and, you know, uh, other cardiovascular going on. It's a huge loss. I would have loved to have seen where her career went next, but that's, that's the story there. Right. Okay. Oh, yes. Okay. And, and I also I have to... seen the Elvis movie since then. Oh, okay. Yeah, you hadn't. So that's right. And I guess yes. this is the part and, where uh, I get to ask I'm... you where we can find you on the web. Uh, before we do that, though, let's tell people what's uh, coming up next. Oh, yeah. Uh, we are going to be talking about movies involving female thieves, Ooh. women who are trying to steal something, we should be clear. Female crook, mm. I guess we should say. And we're looking at two very different movies about that from the year 2000, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, directed by Ang Lee. And from the year 2018, Widows, directed by Steve McQueen. Of course, not the actor Steve McQueen, but the director Steve McQueen. And uh, in addition to both being available on DVD, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, you can currently stream through Amazon Prime or HBO Max or a new streaming service that I've never heard of called AHA. Wonder if it's any relation to the band, uh, or you can rent or buy it through most of the usual streaming services. Whereas uh, Widows, you can uh, stream it through Fubo or DirecTV, or you can rent or buy it through most of the usual streaming services. And as for myself, uh, I am on Facebook, Sean Gallagher, and we here at the show also have our own Facebook page. Page, as well as our own Twitter feed. And if you want to contact us with a question or a comment, you can either comment on our Facebook or Twitter feed or email us. Our email address is wordsandmoviespod at gmail.com. And how about you, Claude? Well, you can find me on the Twitter machine at Claude Call, and you can also check out my other podcast, uh, How Good It Is which is a pop music podcast, and that's over at howgooditis.com. There seems to be a lot of Bollywood on that AHA service. Okay, well, we're talking about a Bollywood movie in a future episode, so maybe I will check that out. Now, before we wrap it up, uh, you may have mentioned this in a past episode, mm -hmm. But Rebecca, the woman who is kind enough to do our intro and outro for each episode, has a website of her own. 
and we should mention that as well. It's Rebecca Blackman, although Rebecca is spelled R-E-B-E-K-H-A, Blackman, B-L-A-C-K-M-O-N, and Rebecca Blackman is all one word, dot com, where she has her own music-related stuff on it, and it's well worth checking out. She does. She's a very talented musician. So, uh, thanks for listening, and we will see you all next time. Thanks a lot, Rebecca. After all those nice things, I hope you take us out nicely. Okay. This is your announcer, Rebecca Blackman, with the closing credits. This show was produced by Sean Gallagher and Claude Call, with editing and post-production by Claude, with some help from Ophonic. Audio clips are used under fair use rules for commentary and educational framing. Everything else is copyrighted by Claude Call and Sean Gallagher. The theme music you're bopping along to right now is by Solar Flare and is used under a Creative Commons license. Podcast hosting is provided by Anchor.fm. If you want to support the show, go to anchor.fm slash wordsandmovies and click on the support link. Who knows? Maybe they'll even kick a few bucks my way. Thanks for listening. <laughs>